I got a meeting in the girls' room. Do you wanna come with Boo? I got a meeting in the girls' room. Do you wanna come with Boo? Excuse me, do you know where the bathroom is? Do you know how the bathroom is? Do you know why the bathroom is? Hi, listener. Welcome back to another episode of Do You Want to Come With? As usual, I'm your gracious and effervescent host, David McKeever. Today's episode is a big one. It's kind of like the climax of season one. I present my working theory of the bathroom. Now, it's just the beginning of a theory. Like, I draw links from my research conversations, the scholarly texts I've engaged with, and the feelings I've had, you know, in an attempt to explore. I'm not trying to prove or assert or pinpoint any one truth. So take this all to heart, or with a grain of salt, but at least listen. My color of the day today is green, like a nice foresty green. I'm also wearing one of my favorite green shirts. It's like a, there's a golden retriever in a stocking. It's kind of like this really big green shirt. It's really comfortable. There's starting to get holes in it now. I thrifted it like two years ago and I wore it so much and like wear the sleep sometimes too. It's so comfortable, but I'm thinking more of like a, a darker green than this shirt. Maybe if you know what shirt I'm talking about, you know what color it is. I'm darker than that, y'all. Darker. Anyways, my message today is, where is the truth? Funnily enough, this is written in green pen on my wall. I wrote it down because I, so, okay, so I graduated recently. One of my most recent classes, or my last class that I ever took, was a creative writing class. And I had this professor before, like about two years ago on Zoom, like this class called Queer Families. It was an amazing class. So much of that class I still take with me today. Um, And I got to have that professor again in like my last class ever. And they said that at the beginning of the semester, like as in when you approach writing, whether you're reading it, whether you're writing it yourself, ask yourself the question, where is the truth? And follow that truth. Why does something resonate with you? It's because something in there resonates with something you know to be true. So everywhere I look now, not just in writing, I just think, where is the truth? I look for the truth. So that's my message today. My gossip today? Oh, this is a fun one. Okay. So about like this over a year ago, it's old news, whatever. Uh, The first person I ever hooked up with was my across the hall neighbor, um, who was about 10 years older than me. You didn't hear me say that. Um, And he moved out a month later. So that tells you how it went. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. He had much bigger fish to fry than me. Um, but yeah, that, I guess that's my gossip today. Here's what, here's what I'm doing with this gossip. Okay. Like imagine you're in the girl's bathroom, like you're on the night out, you're having fun, you meet someone in the bathroom and then they like tell you something. They're like, oh my God, this happened to me. This happened. That's my gossip. That's what I'm gossiping about. You know, like, so me sharing that with you, don't think that first off you're signing on to listen to a podcast about the bathroom. Um, I'm pretty sure you can hear about me hooking up with somebody. So get over it. Anyways, all right, I'm done now. And that's the end of the podcast. Bye, everybody. (laughs) No, I mean, I'm done with my bullshit. So let's just get into it. Okay, let's get into it. All right. Starting off, I want to talk about gender versus the bathroom. And more specifically, the girl's bathroom, but the bathroom and gender. The bathroom in general. I am so sorry. Obviously, I'm thinking about gender a lot. Anyways, the girl's bathroom is a complex space. 
from cis women who revel in that space, to genderqueer and trans people who have to navigate that space, to those who are left out, a lot is going on. The bathroom itself is a gendered space. It's almost a microcosm of gender's function. You know, gender functions as a set of norms surrounding appearance and behavior, and is usually based on biological sex, or notions of biological sex. Bathrooms are sex sites. S-E-X-E-D, sexed sites. They are made to be sexed. I draw this idea from scholar Kath Brown from a 2004 article. In this article, she says, quote, Women negotiate the policing of sex sites such that bodies, sex sites, toilets, and the locations of these sites, nightclubs, service stations, are mutually constituted within sexed regimes of power, end quote. So this link between sex sites and dominant power structures and their institutions is clear, which makes also the gendering and the sexing of the bathroom an act of power. You know, this stems from dominant institutions and the locations of these institutions and where they're setting themselves up. And the the fact that biological sex is also something that is kind of determined by the state, you know, like so in the ties into my next idea. So according to scholar Paisley Curra in his book, Sex Is as Sex Does, Governing Transgender Identity, quote, ideologies of gender certainly undergird state determinations of male and female. The effects of gender, however, are not contained within legal architectures. They exceed, even envelop them. Gender brings sex into being, end quote. So basically, what all this to say is that legal sex categories are not what creates gender. Rather, gender creates sex. Now, at the same time, gender kind of like functions off of legal categories of biological sex, or at least gender comes from the idea of biological sex, which then the state reads as male, female, man, woman. You know, those are kind of the binary identities that the state kind of like assigns. There's not really much else besides that until recently, but I'll get into that in a second. Gender is also constructed culturally and societally. It changes over time. While gender categories are rigid, that does not mean they don't change, too. And people who are gender nonconforming challenge and change gender by refusing to have their gender be one thing or the other, or have something that looks like what the binary identity says. You can't prove your gender in the bathroom because the gendering in the bathroom supersedes individuality. Paisley Curra also talks about how sex functions in the context of state reclassification of like sex or gender on official documents for trans people. He says that, quote, F and M and X do not designate properties. They do not signify gender identity or the sex assigned at birth or the configurations of a quote unquote post transition body. They are simply what is recorded after a decision has been made by state bureaucracies and judges. So across the board, sex categories fail to capture the totality of gender for everyone. They are just records that the state uses to classify us as one thing or the other. Even for cis people, these categories are still just bureaucratic marks that are not actually grounded in the people that they are marking. Yet they hold so much weight and they hold so much power. So recently I actually got a new passport. I haven't had a passport since I was like a child. It's my first new ID I've gotten um, in a few years. I guess I got... My updated my light driver's license a few years back. But but basically what I'm saying is I had the option to change my gender marker, and I did. So now my passport, it reads X. I'm about to get ready to go and travel for a trip internationally, like a bunch of countries. And I'm aware, I mean, I looked in most of the countries I'm going, they also have the X like designation too. So I don't think it'll be much of an issue. If it does come up, I think I'll just lie and be like, oh yeah, I think it was just a mistake, but it's not really that big of a deal to me. Um, 
whatever. That's irregardless of the point. I, I like I having this moment of to have the state like read me as a certain gender is really interesting because I'm not necessarily like full of bliss or whatever. I don't necessarily feel better about it, but it also kind of like does feel nice at the same time that like there is something out there that like recognizes me, you know, like I think it's really interesting too. like even in the context of like a binary gender system or like the F M and X designation, like X also fails to capture the totality of like my biological sex. And if we're thinking that like, you know, gender is something that is only constituted through sex, you know, that, that, that has to be false because you have this state designation that I have that actually doesn't come from biological sex. So just tying back to Kura's early, earlier point about like gender brings sex into being, this is a proof of that because my gender brought my sex category or my like into being. And it doesn't designate like that X doesn't signify anything about my body or my gender, because if I had my way, I would have that full gender queer written on it or like GQ, you know, but also I'm not a fucking like men's publication. Come on. Um, yeah, but I don't know. This passport marker has been really interesting for me. And like, I've really been thinking about it a lot. And like now I actually have my physical passport and I'm getting closer to when I'm going to start my travel. I think I leave in three weeks from the day that this is recorded. Um, and yeah, I don't know. It's 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 really interesting. It, like it also proves to me that like even though the state reads me legibly as this like society might or the state might not even or other states might not even, you know, and like I think a lot the scope of this project or just the scope of like how I've lived, you know, I've lived in the United States my whole life, like I have left the country maybe like two or three times um and not for many many years like I live in an American framework and I kind of realize I have to operate from that place because I live in the United States. I can't be like that involved in other countries business. That's not true for everybody, but that's where I'm at, you know? And so now I'm trying to think like outside of this like dynamic too. And like outside of these very American histories of gender and realities of gender, because I also know that like in a lot of other places, you know, like we might think that like some other countries are more backwards or whatever. I don't think that's necessarily true. Like, I think that like gender changes and evolves as people do. And I don't think there's anywhere in the world right now that you could go and say that it's the same kind of gender that's going on in the United States. So I don't know. And how is that going to translate for me as I'm traveling? Um, yeah, maybe we'll find out. All of this to say is that like being recorded and legible by the state when it comes to gender is a huge part of navigating trans or genderqueer identity. The gender categories that do exist are not really material things, you know, yet they are how the state verifies you and makes yourself legible to the state. Although binary biological gender is assumed, the sign on the bathroom door is also not a property of one's gender. Yet, most genderqueer and trans people are left with two public bathroom options and neither feel safe and neither fail to really capture what their gender is. So one last thing I want to talk about before I move on to another, another little thing, because um, I have all these little things that I want to talk about. Let's talk about urinals. Some men's bathrooms I've used have only had urinals or like, or at least like urinals are the only working facility and urinals kind of force you to take on certain behaviors that are gendered, as if standing to pee was this masculine trait because the cultural construction of masculinity is deeply tied to, like, having a penis and using that penis and being a man with that penis, you know? 
in my conversation with Zoe, we talked about how I prefer to sit to pee, you know? I don't like standing up, so why should I do it? It's easier. It makes, you know, less of a less of, less of a risk to, for mess, you know? Plus, like, the only times I'm really forced to is at a urinal or, like, if I'm in a public bathroom, too, and I know I can't really sit down on the seat because also, if you've ever used a men's bathroom, for some reason, even though there's all those urinals, men will still go into the stall to pee and they will still refuse to pick up the fucking toilet seat. So then there's just piss all over the fucking toilet seat. It's so fucking annoying. I hate men's bathrooms. Which is probably why I'm thinking a lot about the women's bathrooms. Just, you know, if you didn't know what this podcast was about, it's, uh, it's actually about the girls' bathroom. And me thinking that it smells like roses and that it's per- perfectly spotless all the time. Um, <laughs> anyways. But yeah, at, at the urinal, like I'm reminded of the sex gendering of the bathroom space, of how gender and sex like make each other too. And I'm thinking about this and I'm just in the bathroom, you know, why do I have to confront this in the bathroom? Trust me, I've tried not to, I've tried to turn these thoughts off, but I'm sitting in the bathroom because I sit to pee and I'm just like, I, there's so much going on here that I have no choice over. And yet I can't just like ignore it because it's making me feel a certain kind of way. And I've been learned, I've learned not to ignore my feelings, you know? And then as I was like, we were talking about this, Zoe and I were talking about this, me sitting to pee, whatever. Zoe then talked about wanting to stand to pee as almost if like I would affirm them or like even just be easier to like stand to pee rather than to like, you know, you have to pull your pants down, pull them back up, like all that stuff. So anyways, these performed behaviors of the bathroom space are meant to evoke biological understandings of gender. It's really interesting, too, how this interacts with genderqueer experiences like mine and Zoe's. We openly resist these behaviors, or at least express a desire to do so, or feel a desire to do so. We don't align with the gendering of that space either. Like, we are not, like, when we go into the gendered bathrooms, we are not, we are not what the sign on the door says. So, like, why should we have to follow its norms of behavior, you know? So even though gender is supposedly based on sex, which it isn't, I've proved that throughout this, I think, we still don't perform our gender based on our sex, you know? Like, that's not how like gender is created. So all this to say is that even though we kind of live in this cultural myth that like sex creates gender, gender is actually created through sex, you know? Moving on now, I want to talk about safe and accessible bathrooms. So bathrooms literally restrict people based on gender and ability. On gender, you know, you have queer men or people read as men, like can't go into the girls' bathroom freely. But they can enter in some spaces and use it in some cases, like whether it's taking care of a friend or if like the bathroom's empty, you know? And on that other note, like women can't use the men's bathroom, or I guess they can, but like, I guess most people would not want to. Um, Then you have genderqueer people who can enter and use bathrooms, gendered bathrooms, depending on how much they conform to those norms. But ultimately, this access only happens through misgendering oneself or like exposing yourself to microaggressions or something if you are, or even macroaggressions too, if you're presenting as gender nonconforming. On ability, if a bathroom isn't ADA accessible, disabled people cannot use that space freely. Urinals are almost impossible for most physically disabled people to use. Not all bathrooms also have big enough stalls where, like, people who use wheelchairs can, like, freely sit down or, like, transfer themselves freely. Or there are details of the space generally that are just overlooked, which make disabled people's experiences in the bathroom hell. So, overall, access to the girls' bathroom 
is based on the following criteria. One, being a girl or performing a heterosexual, cisgender kind of femininity, even if you're not heterosexual or cisgender yourself. Two, invitation from girls or your friends or your girlfriends, you know? Three, acting normal or like not acting weird. Four, the lack of others in that space, if you're not a woman and you want to enter that space. And five, the physical construction of that space. Again, if the bathroom is not ADA accessible, most disabled people cannot use it. So then you get to this idea of community in the bathroom. A truly free community must be safe and accessible for all that are in that community. The sense of community in the bathroom, then, must mean something else. Fighting for equitable access to the bathroom has been the focus of PISSAR, P-I-S-S-A-R. PISSAR stands for People in Search of Safe and Accessible Restrooms. They're a coalition of, quote, queer, genderqueer, and disabled people working towards a greater awareness for the need for safe and accessible bathrooms on college campuses and in college dorms, end quote. In 2003, they found their beginnings. They were formed at the University of California Student of Color Conference, born from a coalition between trans and disabled student groups. Once they established themselves and their cause, PISAR started to form a larger coalition amongst identity groups. They also organized with the student group Ant Flow and the Plug Patrol, which fought for access to tampon and pad dispensers in all bathrooms. They considered people with young children who need special bathroom accommodations, such as changing tables. They realized that people's needs transcended identity categories and that the best way for people to get what they need was to work together and to fight for everybody's access to these spaces. So through Pissar's mission and their coalition-building tactics, it becomes clear how the bathroom is a space of conflict for so many people, and we're usually left to navigate these spaces ourselves. We haven't been given the tools to negotiate our own identity in the bathroom, so we have to seek them out for each other. They developed a pretty extensive checklist, too, that covers like many dimensions of access that people might need in the bathroom. I'll include a link to the checklist in the description in case you'd like to check it out. It's pretty cool. I'll just read a few of them for you right now. So there's four, three or four different sections on here. First, they have like what type of bathrooms in it? Is it like men's, women's, unisex? Like where's the bathroom located on the campus? Like does it open directly to the outside or is the entry in the building? You know, kind of like basic information. You have the disability accessibility criteria. Some of these include, is the door into the bathroom wide enough? Is the stall door wide enough? What kind of latch is on the stall door? Does the stall door close by itself? How high is the toilet seat? If it's a multi-stall bathroom, how many stalls in there are accessible? Is there a mirror at chair height? Is there an audible alarm system? Is the outer bathroom door marked as accessible? Those are just some of the criteria. There's about 24 in total in that section. Then you have the gender safety section. Is the bathroom marked as unisex? Does it lock from the inside? Is it next to a gender-specific bathroom so that it serves as a de facto men's or women's restroom? It's really funny that they bring this up, too. I actually encountered this at a um, bar in D.C. like in the past few months. It was like they had a men's bathroom and then they had like a, a unisex bathroom right next to it. And I was like, well, wh what? Like and the men's bathroom, I think, was also a single person bathroom or maybe it wasn't. It had like a bathroom, a stall and a urinal in there. I don't know. It was very bizarre. Anyway, sorry. Tangent. The next section in the Pissar checklist is Ant Flow and the Plug Patrol. So they have, what type of machine is in the bathroom? Is it a tampon dispenser? Is it a pad dispenser? Is it a tampon and pad dispenser? 
Does it look so rusty and disgusting that even if it works, you doubt anyone would use it? Is it empty? Does it have a this machine is broken sticker? And then finally, they have one last section, which is for childcare. And the only item under it is, does the bathroom have a changing table? So these kind of criteria, I, I think it's really interesting. And I think could probably be expanded on and probably have been expanded on. I think I'm using an outdated checklist. I looked pretty hard to find like updated versions and I couldn't find any, but they're really just like, has gotten me thinking about like all the different aspects of access in the bathroom, you know? And I know that that is their main goal, you know? Like they, ha they actually had three main goals. The first one was to raise awareness about all the dimensions that might make bathrooms accessible and safe to use. Their second goal was to map out where accessible bathrooms are on their campus, but also campuses more generally. And their third goal was to advocate for more accessible bathrooms on college campuses. You know, there's a really interesting article that came out in 2015 called Bathrooms and Beyond um, by scholar Cassius Adair. Cassius Adair is a teacher. Um, they describe their experiences teaching the intersections of access based on disability, transness, and race. They, they taught through um, and thought through Pissar's work when they were teaching their class. They said the following, quote, What is the role of gender-inclusive restrooms inside academic buildings or local coffee shops when so many people, including, of course, trans and disabled people, are being turned away at the academy's front door, end quote. So we have to pay very close attention to projects of inclusion. We have to really look at who's being included and who's being left out. Adair talks about how through engaging through with a critical framework that interrogates the physical and social effects of transphobia, ableism, classism, and racism, their students were awakened to the scope of accessibility. So like through engaging with the bathroom too, we're also able to imagine futures where access isn't conditional on one's body, one's mind, or their status, too. And I also don't think that, like, Pissar's work, while they work on college campuses, I mean, like, I don't think this is something that is limited to, like, an educational sphere. And I think Adair kind of points to that in their work, too. Like, local coffee shops having, like, gender-inclusive bathrooms. Like, I think er back to, like, an earlier episode, I think it was episode one, I talked about, like, Starbucks in the Starbucks in Philly where two black men got arrested for like quote unquote loitering because they weren't allowed to use the bathroom while waiting for their coworker. Like that Starbucks kind of touts itself as this like progressive like coffee shop, you know? Like like maybe they don't. I mean like I know they're they do some shoddy union stuff. Um but yeah, like they I I people would think Starbucks and they would think like liberal company, like they probably say happy holidays and not merry christmas, you know? Like shit, shit like that. So, I think far beyond just college campuses, if we think about Pissar's work and we think about the bathroom more generally, it doesn't have to be limited to the college campus. It exists everywhere. These these gendered and these these gender dynamics, these ability-based dynamics, they exist everywhere, you know? And we have to remember that. So I think Pissar's work can teach us really valuable things about how we notice the bathroom, how we pay attention to public spaces, how we move about in public spaces that other people don't have to consider, you know? So really cool stuff. I think they're really amazing. Again, I'll include a link to the checklist in the episode description, and I highly encourage everyone to, you know, look into them a little bit more, you know? Anyways, let's take a bathroom break, shall we?
Welcome back from the bathroom. Hope you washed your hands. Anyways, so I've arrived now at my bathroom theory. You know, I just did a whole lot of talking about gender and accessibility and stuff. Now I want to get into it. So first off, we have intimacy and vulnerability. Two major features of the bathroom are like intimacy and vulnerability. All of my conversations included the mention of intimacy, especially when I talked to cis women. Emma noted that it might not be a quote-unquote real intimacy, but it's still more vulnerable than she would feel around men. Intimacy and vulnerability is fostered mostly by the fact that people are going to the bathroom together. When you have your pants down next to a stranger, it's pretty hard to not feel a sense of like vulnerability, and vulnerability can also then create a sense of intimacy too. This might be the reason why women feel comfortable chiming into each other's conversations, because they've already broken a social barrier, and it's like, why not also just like, Call out from, like, inside the stall, you know? You can't ignore intimacy and vulnerability, and it changes how you conduct yourself in any given space, at least in my opinion. And the bathroom allows for this intimacy by touching either most raw or most bare or most dirty selves. So moving on now to dirt. Public bathrooms are gross, you know? I don't think anyone necessarily feels comfortable in a public bathroom. But to relieve yourself, you have to get dirty. Pissing, shitting, throwing up, menstruating, and other bodily functions are all dirty, and they require space to quote-unquote regulate that dirt. The bathroom kind of exists separated from the rest of the public space that it's in. The bathroom is like, has boundaries, you know? It's not really usually in the center place of whatever place you're in. It's like, you have to go to the back to find the bathroom. It keeps out what is dirty from the main space. The bathroom is this kind of annex of dirt, where dirtiness is sent to hide. As mentioned by Ruth Barkan in in Dirty Spaces from the Toilet Anthology, quote, the function of boundaries is, precisely, to prevent the spread of dirt, literal or symbolic, by demarcating, dividing, and separating people, places, objects, whose proximity might otherwise be troubling, end quote. Keeping out dirt also means keeping out deviance, otherness, you know, as dirt threatens the supposed purity of the body. Therefore, I can't help but feel like the bathroom's status as a dirty place also makes it a kind of deviant place. Perhaps dirtiness's acceptance in the bathroom makes it a space of deviance, where illicit activities like having sex and doing drugs flourish. How does that deviance conflict with normativity, which aims to regulate people into what's normal and to what's not? In Learning the Loo from the book Toilet, Harvey Malach describes the bathroom, saying, quote, The animal in us comes to the fore, and we must accommodate to its tendencies and demands. It is bare life, end quote. We are taught to regulate our dirty bodies from our public selves. So, therefore, but the bathroom then becomes a place where dirtiness is allowed, but not openly encouraged. There are rules to the bathroom, conventions to follow to keep things clean, Piss, shit, vomit, blood, and more goes down the drain and nowhere else. Of course, shit happens, quite literally, and fluids and stuff can get everywhere, making the bathroom dirtier. Toilets spray up particles into the air with every flush. The bathroom, no matter how sanitized it is, will never be free of dirt. Yet, again, dirtiness is allowed, but it's not openly encouraged. The publicness of the bathroom conflicts with this experience of bare life. My conversation with Lila, she showed me a meme she saw about, like, feeling shame around opening a pad in the girls' bathroom. This is what it reads. Quote, I can't believe I just said quote to read a meme. Oh, my God. Anyways, quote, 
Don't be in the public bathroom next to me trying to open up that pad all slow. Girl, I know you ain't eating no damn chips. Slap that pad in them panties and get out so I can fart. End quote. <laughs> I'd love that meme so much. I think it's so, it's beautifully written. It's like, sums up a mess, a beautiful message. You know, the message was to just do your business, not feel shame. But when we're taught to separate all of this dirty, what do we do when we're dirty ourselves? You know, like, what do you do when you need to you know, open a tampon, but you don't want other people to like think that you're dirty or because people have been taught to like, think of like their own body experiences as dirty things, you know? I imagine this conflict is more profound for those who aren't seen as deviant or abnormal outside of the bathroom, as those who are seen as deviant seem more comfortable with dirt, with the primal urgence of the bathroom space. All of us are taught to be shameful about our dirt, and we learn this from oppressive normative regimes we live in. But I also think that like oppressed or marginalized people who have started kind of unlearning this oppression realize that like, oh yeah, like I might just get dirty, you know, like that's okay. I'm not bad because of that. Or maybe you might see me as a deviant because of that, but I am who I am and I have to own that, you know? I had a conversation with my mother recently too about the bathroom, where she talked about the impulse to hide the fact that she's having bodily functions in the bathroom. She talked about how a lot of women of her generation feel this shame deeply, and the bathroom becomes a place of shame, competition, fear. Using the bathroom becomes a game of being quick and being quiet. Fixing one's hair or makeup becomes looking at other women to see how they look and comparing oneself to them. This insecurity around one's body and how it's presenting stems from the norms around the body that have to do with purity and perfection. And this plays out in the bathroom, I think across all ages too. I think I didn't come out with this as much with the people I interviewed, but I think there is this sense of competition in the bathroom too, especially around appearance or like behavior, you know? So for girls in the bathroom, dirt, piss, and shit challenges shallow notions of femininity and womanhood. Those frivolous jokes that state like girls don't poop are just simply not true. And women who use the bathroom know that. Also, y'all, I know that too. They're lying. I've been, first off, girl right here, you know. Second off, I've been close to women all my life. I know damn well that they're farting and pooping and they're like literally like liars, you know. That's not, they, they, they poop like everybody else. Stop lying, girls. I'm on to you. (laughs) Anyways, but also like these kinds of cultural ideas of feminine behavior can fall away in the bathroom when you know what's actually going on. You know, maybe women do get to be dirty around each other, but nowhere else. Maybe this is why community is easier for women. Or maybe it's because women like learn to be more social with each other too. Or maybe this like community is not easier. Maybe women are actually still policing each other depending on where they stand. Maybe they still do feel shame about their bodies and want to keep themselves small. And maybe this community is based on a false sense of shared experiences. In episode one, I talked about dirt and how dirt is aligned with otherness. I said, embrace dirt. And I stand by that. The history and reality of segregated bathrooms, whether based on race, gender, or ability, was and is violent. The social control projects of exclusion allow the state to maintain power and dominance over their populations who are reduced down to their bodies. Dirt, as the quote-unquote other, threatens the state. Dirt threatens the boundaries of identity, such as gender and race, because it forces us to question this false idea of the pure, perfect, and whole body, one that is strictly one thing and not another. 
In a white supremacist logic, purity, perfection, and wholeness is only afforded to those who are white, cisgender, heterosexual, and able-bodied. In reality, though, we are in constant exchange with everything around us. There are thousands of organisms living inside of us at all times. The air we breathe is what keeps us alive, and we breathe in everything and everyone around us. We do not have a whole self that exists unthreatened. The true wholeness lies in the oneness around us. We are all dirty, and dirt is in all of us. Our constant exchange is a sign of a symbiosis of the earth. We all grow and build off of each other. We all come from the same matter, too, if you look at it plainly. There is a oneness here. The material and social conditions of our world try to make us forget that oneness. Do not fall for these illusions. Moving on now to shame. So sexuality studies scholar Sheila Cavanaugh has extensively explored the bathroom throughout her writing career. In a short article titled, You Are Where You Urinate, Cavanaugh explores the bathroom. She says, quote, Much of what we cannot say in polite society surfaces in the toilet. The toilet, like the unconscious, is a dumping ground for unacceptable impulses, sexual practices, identifications, and desires. The vicissitudes of love and hate, desire and aggression, are not only written on the bathroom walls, but enacted in real time. People die and have sex in toilets. Illicit messages are etched onto partition walls that span from the lascivious to the hate-filled. People cry and vomit, bond and gossip, eject needles and illegal substances, learn about gay sex and birth control thanks to condom dispensers and birth control advertisements on the back of cubicle doors. We do all kinds of things deemed imprudent, illegal, or vulgar in polite society. End quote. Kavanaugh also notes how bathrooms are constructed with the worry or fear of public sex and the shame around them. Stalls, with cracks in the doors and openings at the bottom, are usually constructed so that you see who's in there and what they might be doing. Kavanaugh notes how we do not interrogate how the bathroom is a space of regulating desire, yet it does exist as such as sex is hugely common and taboo in the bathroom. Also, too, in the cultural imagination, there's no place for dirt in sex. But in reality, sex is disgusting. I don't mean that in a value judgment kind of way, but it's like impossible not to become entangled in other people's fluids and their stink and their bodies, you know? And in essence, like, you do get dirty when you have sex. The bathroom is a dirty place, too, so it makes sense that sex happens in there. So shame around sex and shame around the bathroom both stem from the same kind of shame that we have around our bodies, or the fact that we have bodies, you know? I think this is done in an attempt to detach ourselves from our bodies and our needs, to enforce conformity, and to enforce ourselves, like, kind of just, like, stick into the grind, ignoring our bodies. If we ignore our realities of dirt and grime and what our body feels and needs, we conform to what a quote-unquote civilized citizen is. This notion of civility, or of politeness and cleanliness, is always used to regulate racialized people, indigenous people, trans people, queer people, disabled people, and working class people. Those who do not fall in line lose their access to their humanity. So to resist this dehumanization system, we must readjust how we think, feel, and speak about our bodies and its needs. We must give space to start, and we must step back from shame. In their call to action statement, calling on restroom revolutionaries, Pissar talks about shame. So by internalizing and believing homophobia, transphobia, ableism, sexism, classism, racism, we learn to feel a deep sense of shame about ourselves. Folks whose marginality is visible and outspoken are often pushed out and ignored by mainstream progressive movements. 
stemming from a deeply ingrained false sense of shame or of an internalized self-hatred that is then used to justify hatred against others. You know, I think a lot about like, like at the early gay liberation movement, um, kind of cisgender and white or like a, like upper middle class queer people, gay people kind of were like, oh, we're going to like focus on becoming like accessible to the population and assimilate to what like the norms already are. We're going to be good, hardworking citizens. And also in that process, they left behind like, like mentally ill people or like trans people or people of color or working class people, you know, this self-hatred thinking that they have to be one thing in order to be accepted led them to exclude others from their movement. About all of this, Pissar says that, quote, all of these lead to and result from a sense of shame in our bodies, a shame that pervades our conversations, our relationships and our politics, end quote. In my project, there's no place for shame. Okay, well, that's not necessarily true, but, like, there is not space for the flourishing and the growing of shame. I'm fueled by a deep love and respect for those in my life who contributed to this project, those whose experiences and theories I'm drawing from, and for all people, even those who I do not want to love. We are all deeply affected by this shame. In Bell Hooks' masterpiece, Exploration of Love, All About Love, she talks about the road to love and through healing the lovelessness that we have been taught by our society. Systems of white supremacy, patriarchy, and capitalism teach us lovelessness, teach us violence, teach us domination, and teach us judgment. Judgment, as, judgment is at the root of all essentialism, as a friend said to me recently. Judgment tells us who is good and who is bad. It tells us who is clean and who is dirty, who is human and who is not. To combat essentialism in all forms, we must adopt a love ethic. We must center this path of love in our lives and take steps to heal from the violence of societal lovelessness. Hook says, quote, as long as we feel shame, we can never believe ourselves worthy of love. While we are told to feel and adopt shame as our core emotion and to believe that we're not worthy of love, those who feel the violence of this pain the most are those who cannot conform to societal norms. So in resisting violence, we have to have no shame. This is why I want to talk about the bathroom, about why I'm finally ready to voice this discomfort that I've been feeling for years. This is why I don't want to shy away from the realities of the bathroom. By giving space for all of this gross, nasty, and hurtful stuff to just be there, we expose this shame that has been taught to us, and we work against this lovelessness. In the bathroom, we're taught to hide ourselves. Even though we all know what's going on in there, we still hold on to shame around our bodies and their functions. We are afraid of people hearing us shitting or pissing. We are scared of causing a disruption. We're scared of being different and unwelcome. But by embracing the reality that yes, we do have bodies, and yes, they do have needs, we begin to learn how to love. From a place of love, we can imagine and create a world that is accessible and safe for all, where projects of violent social control do not determine our needs, where life is celebrated, where life is worth more than anything else. Like Pissar, I ask, where will you be when the revolution comes? Like them, I'll be in the bathroom. Will you join me? Moving on now to this idea of safety or danger in the bathroom. Safety exists in multiple ways in the bathroom. For women, it allows them to get away from creepy men, and women often go to the bathroom together too to avoid weird people in the bathroom. 
Campbell also described the importance of having a space for women where they can feel safe, and he said he doesn't advocate for just using whatever bathroom he wants to because he understands the necessity of safety for women in the bathroom. But I think about safety more generally, too. You know, there's this piece by Joel Sanders and Susan Stryker in which they say that it's important to, quote, recognize that safety is one symptom of a larger dilemma posed when groups that mainstream society considers abnormal or deviant clamor for non-prejudicial access to public space, end quote. When safety is evoked as a reason for engendering the bathroom, this ignores the nuances of the space and the nuances of safety itself. Who is allowed to be safe? Whose safety is prioritized? And then how are queer and gender non-conforming people inherently seen as predatory through this discourse of safety and danger? As I talked about with Zoe, the bathroom space does not feel safe for gender non-conforming folks, but mainstream society doesn't seem to care. Research confirms this too, with scholar Jennifer Ingray finding that, quote, for the gender non-conforming person, the public washroom is a site of contention, danger, and potential violence, end quote. So safety for who? Gender queer and trans people are far more likely to experience violence in the bathroom rather than cis women. So again, safety for who? Moving on to community. I've talked about community a lot. I just wanted to wrap it up, you know. So who do people feel community with? In the girls' bathroom, community is not always guaranteed, but cis women seem to expect a sense of community in there, or at least a sense of welcomeness. However, if one doesn't feel safe in the bathroom, then community can't happen, and therefore, it seems like the community of the girls' bathroom is kind of superficial. A deeper sense of community transcends gender boundaries, so people still might feel community together in the bathroom, but it probably usually isn't based on gender. Cis women feel community with each other, mostly, but not universally. There's danger everywhere, and that danger arises when one has allegiance to dominant norms. When community is based on a normative, biological idea of gender, it will ultimately fail, because it will assume a shared experience that's just not there. As many people noted, it's only straight girls who get to talk about sex in the bathroom and be accepted for it. The gendered community in the girls' bathroom is based on heterosexuality and cisness, ultimately. Moving on to this private and public dynamic in the bathroom. As noted in Toilet, the bathroom exists as a place where we, quote, set up our presentation of self. And when we are readying that performance, it becomes truly important to who knows what we are up to and just how they know it, end quote. In the bathroom, we learn to do private acts in public. Stalls allow for a deeper sense of privacy, but there is still risk of exposure in a public bathroom. We learn a lot about who we are and who the strangers we interact with are, and therefore, the public bathroom becomes a place where we navigate our public and also private identities. As noted by Ruth Barkan, quote, Public toilets are not only ambiguous spaces and contested spaces, all the more so they are also multiple spaces. In the sense, they house many needs and practices. Public toilets are thus places where we meet members of the public, where we interact with and continually reproduce an idea of the public, end quote. So in the bathroom, we learn how to become public bodies with private lives in public spaces. Moving on to the secrecy and disclosure dynamic. For queer and genderqueer people, we know private and public lives all too well. If we reveal too much of ourselves, we face violence. And to be authentic in the bathroom requires a level of safety that is just not guaranteed. Therefore, queerness exists in secrecy in the bathroom. In my conversation with Zoe, they talked about how, while straight sex is talked about and openly in the bathroom, queer sex is the thing that is going on in the bathroom. 
However, queer sex only happens usually in the stalls. Once you leave the stall, heterosexuality is reassumed. I find I can only enter the men's bathroom when I'm presenting more masculine. On days where I'm presenting more femme, I would never enter the bathroom, at risk of disclosing my identity. You know, I talked about last episode, entering a, a men's bathroom when I was like out, out at like a club and like wearing a more feminine outfit um, and having makeup on and stuff. And kind of doing it, it was easier for me to do it there. But I would never, like, if I was wearing a skirt and dressing up, I'd never go into a men's bathroom in, like, a department store or something. Or even at college. You know, when I was in college, if I was wearing a skirt, wearing my femme outfits, I would never go into the men's bathroom. And that would, like, be hell for me to have to do. So then, to also enter the girls' bathroom as a queer man also requires a disclosure identity. You know, you can't just go in and be, like, like go about your business and like with your girlfriends without being like, Oh, I'm gay. You know, like wrist, y'all didn't see it, but I like, I like did limp wrist, you know, like, Hey, um, (laughs) anyways. So while this space has a sense of privacy, it almost forces those who do and don't conform to that space to reveal or to mute their identities to be accepted. In an article called peeing under surveillance, Scholar Kyla Bender-Bayard notes that gender public bathrooms serve to, quote, uphold the gender binary by forcing people to choose between men's and women's rooms, end quote, and therefore choose their gender. By having to choose the men's bathroom out of safety, there's an attempt to break my spirit into conformity. I felt it before, many, many times. But I don't let it break me, because I know the lies and the violence of the gender binary, and I know not to believe them at this point. So while gender-segregated bathrooms might try and force me to conform to a binary, my gender queerness lets me resist it. I know who I am, and I don't need a fucking bathroom sign to tell me, and nobody can tell me who I am except for me, you know, and the people who care about me, but except for me. The state or strangers who hate me and want queer and trans people out of sight or dead have no business in my mind or in my space telling me who I am. Moving on now to ephemerality. I'm returning now to ephemera. I talked about in episode one. This is part of my methodology. You know, you have to rely on things that are a little bit more ephemeral. Things that happen that are just memories or just just glimpses of things or traces of things that you might see that other people might not see because they don't have the relationship with a space or with an object or with a person that you do. In the bathroom, ephemera exists because this space is often unrecorded. You know, you're not being watched in the bathroom. There's no cameras in there usually. I mean, you can always take out your phone, make a little video, and then it becomes recorded. But usually the interactions you have in the bathroom aren't being verified or archived in any way. To recall the bathroom, you have to rely on the experiences that stick with you, on the traces that exist in your mind of the bathroom. Additionally, bathrooms have stuff like graffiti or like damage that's markers of performances once had. That people who like, say, say if you made that graffiti mark, you might know where you're at. You might know the feelings that you have attached to it, but somebody else just might see it and also might have a different relationship to it. They might see the graffiti and be like, oh yeah, this message, I saw this one day when I was having a bad day and it made me happy or something. And they remember that feeling. That's where ephemera lies in the bathroom. And that's how it oozes throughout the bathroom. So Jose Munoz, who I draw the idea of ephemera from, does not assert that marginalized people have some sort of priority connection to ephemera. But he does note that ephemera is often used by marginalized subjects in academic spaces to prove marginal experiences. The ephemeral nature of the bathroom can kind of help marginalized people understand their own marginality better. 
these experiences stick with us. You know, gender in the bathroom, that sticks with me, obviously, and perhaps more so than for gender conforming people. I think of my conversation with Zoe, where they describe the memory of being praised in the bathroom while wearing a suit and a full face of makeup. Zoe had attached a tech deck, it's like mini skateboard wheels, onto their jewel, which is like a vape. Um, if you don't know what a jewel is, honestly, like, get with the times, you know? Honestly, at this point, it's a relic. Um, but anyways, that, like, they, they, had the, they had a tech deck on their jewel, and they were like showing a group of drunk girls, and the drunk girls were praising them. Again, like, Zoe was presenting at the time, like, I don't think they necessarily understood themselves as non-binary, but they maybe were, they were presenting gender non-conforming, and they were loving that, and they were feeling that. And this memory stuck with Zoe. This was a reminder of a time where they transgressed the bathroom space before thinking deeply about their gender. So this experience sticks out, I think, because the ephemeral space of the bathroom and the performance of gender they were doing intersected at the same time. The feelings attached to ephemeral interactions become a way of proving one's gender, even if the dominant culture won't verify that, or even if the sign on the door says man or woman. Years later, Zoe tells me the story back with passion. Through this, I see the effects of ephemera in the bathroom for marginalized people. We remember what goes on in there because every time we're in there, we feel something like gender or ability or identity more broadly, very, very personally, in ways that other people might not. Finally, moving on to mundane, necessary reprieve. While the bathroom is not a neutral space, it does exist as a mundane space where people go to relieve themselves. In my conversation with almost everyone, the bathroom is seen as a place of reprieve. Going to the bathroom allows you to release the waste in your body. It allows you to check in with yourself and assess the situation that you're entering when you leave the bathroom. It's a reset space, and we often function automatically in here. We don't really pay attention to what's going on. However, as Ruth Barkan notes, quote, The mundane business of doing one's business in public is thus at once habitual and deeply meaningful, an embodiment of broader and deeper cultural logics, end quote. It is a product of our necessary bodily functions, and it's ultimately mundane, but that doesn't mean it's devoid of meaning. We can learn to embody ourselves through the bathroom, and we can learn how the state upholds a certain kind of embodiment. The simple fact that this mundane act of going to the bathroom is gendered reveals the state's investment in binary gender. When bathrooms aren't gendered, it reveals a different kind of investment in gender. In my conversation with Zoe, we talked about gender-neutral or all-gender or gender-inclusive bathrooms on our university's campus. We talked about how these bathrooms play into a kind of neoliberal agenda, where non-normative identities are assimilated into institutions as a way of the institution making itself seem quote-unquote progressive. Ultimately, the institutions wish to uphold power structures, so this act feels quite hollow. And like being a genderqueer person myself, having one all-gender bathroom in a building that like is often occupied doesn't really like do much for me, you know? So all in all, wrapping up my theory of the bathroom, by looking to the bathroom, we perform a double action, where not only we look at ourselves, but we also look at the structures that construct public space. Now, whew, this is a long one. Let's take another bathroom break, you know? Ooh. Welcome back from another bathroom break. God, you really have to go. Jesus. Anyways, it's that time. 
A rumor has it. All right. So I have a rumor that providing children with services such as puberty blocking hormones, transition surgeries, mental health support, and other gender affirming care is a form of child abuse. And parents or doctors who provide these services deserve a felony charge. Whoa, whoa. This is really big if it's true. But is it true? Okay, so this kind of starts with a Texas case back in, I think it was March 2020 or around early 2020 that time. And I don't think it was just limited to Texas, but there's this, I think their language specifically said that it's child abuse. I think there's other uh, other states too, which have laws or bills that propose felony charges for doctors or parents who seek out um, gender affirming care for kids. Um, at the time, I think it was temporarily blocked by a judge, but there's still these laws on the books that kind of make it a felony or make it dangerous for people to seek out gender-affirming care without being penalized or criminalized. This ties into a larger moral panic about trans kids. You know, you have this idea of parents forcing transness onto kids, of doctors taking advantage of kids, or like places like schools or the media where kids are having transness pushed onto them. The child abuse aspect comes in because people believe that stuff like puberty-blocking hormones or transition surgeries do some sort of irreparable harm to people, and that people become sterilized as a result. You know, I won't say that, like, messes with your reproductive systems, but, like, all in all, like, these surgeries are big decisions, and they're never the first step in someone's transition. This is a myth, you know? I don't think there's many doctors who would operate on kids before giving them years and years of other kinds of gender-affirming care. In most states, kids have to be 15 years old at least, and even then that's in special cases. We also have to remember that kids deserve to have agency over themselves, especially as they come to learn and grow. They deserve information and they deserve access if they truly believe that that's what they need, you know? Like, I also think about this idea of transness being pushed onto kids, as if transness is some predatory or harmful thing in and of itself. This isn't happening. It really just isn't, you know? Kids are coming to know themselves as trans or exploring their gender on their own. In fact, the no there's actually notions of biological sex that's pushed onto children in such profound ways that actually has nothing to do with these kids being trans themselves. There's this case of, um, it was the John or Joan case. Um, the, a man, David Reimer, um, basically he, like as an infant, suffered a botched circumcision. And at the medical advice of the doctors, his parents went ahead and just like they 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 made him they raised him as a girl because he didn't have a penis, you know, and for years and years, he suffered kind of this like emotional abuse, this physical abuse. This doctor was doing really fucked up kind of like pseudo sexual things to him, like and basically eventually came to understand himself that he was like, oh, I'm a man once he learned about it. And then he came out. His name's David Reimer. Um, unfortunately, he killed himself in 2008 and after suffering years and years of this abuse and then people saying things to him, like after he came out with his story, like he was not supported at all. He was forced into a gender that wasn't his. And it was all based around this stupid biological sex notion that like you have to have a certain kind of genitalia. And if you don't, then you have to be something else. So he was made to be a girl. He was kind of pushed to transition his gender or he didn't even have a choice in his gender. It wasn't, a, it wasn't a transition. He was forced to be a certain gender, and he became something else. And later, he transitioned his gender, and while it might have been a cisgender kind of living, he was still, he still transitioned, and that was something that actually affirmed him. But ultimately, like, without the support, you know, people don't actually have, like, 
people can't actually just like feel confident about themselves. And after enduring all this abuse for years, like really messes with you and fucks you up. And I also think about like intersex kids, you know, like intersex people are people who are born not necessarily male or female characteristics, or maybe they have both, like they have a combination. And at a very young age, these kids are often forced into surgeries or just have surgeries without their knowledge, like as infants, and they're forced and raised to be a certain gender. And they have no agency or say in that. And they come to realize about themselves later and they realize the violence that's been enacted against them. And when we think about child abuse, you know, the, the real kinds of child abuse that goes on is like is forcing your kids to be certain things. And that's actually not happening with transness. That's happening with these notions of biological sex or biological gender. That's happening with people who are forced into cisness or forced into a binary gender and then have no space to explore themselves and who are put down every time they try to. What is actually abusive is not having access, agency, and space to explore one's gender and denying kids that space. This leads to higher rates of depression, anxiety, and more. This kind of repressive environment then leads to higher rates of suicide. The idea that kids are being forced into transgender identities is actually happening to kids being forced into cisgender identity. The things that parents or these moral panics fear, which is like a regret about your gender, depression, a sense of not belonging, high rates of suicide, are all actually happening because trans kids are not allowed to be trans. There is no care for the children in this kind of moral panic. These kinds of narratives don't actually assume care. They tug on the heartstrings of parents who might hear these things and freak out about them. But at the heart of these things are not people who have good interests. We need more space for trans kids to explore themselves. They deserve to have informed and sufficient access to transition services. We need to stop thinking that transitioning is ultimately harmful, as if people are being mutilated or harmed by it. We need to understand how things such as surgeries are big deals, but we need to not be afraid of their existence. And also, all the kids aren't turning trans. That's not true. The visibility of trans youth has certainly gotten better, you know? You see more trans kids. But it's not a bad thing, and it doesn't deserve the interrogation that it currently gets. This generation of kids wants to explore their gender and experiment with it, and some may even end up being cis after exploring themselves. That's okay, even if they once transitioned or considered it. These aren't bad things. This is just life, when life is given space to breathe and not be trapped in rigid boundaries. It may seem new to some people, but it is not new to me. Most trans people or queer people will tell you that if they had had support in being themselves at a young age, they probably would have endured a lot less suffering. So let's do better for our kids. Let's give them space and let's support them unconditionally. They deserve that, just like we all deserve that. This rumor is false in its premise. These things are not child abuse and these people don't deserve felony charges. Yet there are laws in some states where parents and doctors may face charges for seeking out gender-affirming care for their kids. These laws are transphobic, aimed to once again enact a project of genocidal erasure of trans people. If we aren't allowed to transition by law at a young age, what's stopping them from banning transitions across the board? These are where these laws lead. These lawmakers only want to be legally allowed to hate and discriminate against marginalized people, and they are getting their way in so many places. So please, stand up for us. Stand up for the queer people, trans people. Stand up for the drag artists. And stand up for the kids who are being targeted by these laws. Because one day, they're going to come for you too. And where are we going to be to help you all out? Oh, 
time to wrap up. I know, I spent a lot of time in the bathroom today. Thank you all for listening so much. You know, at the end of the day, when you need to go, you need to go. Negotiating the bathroom takes on many different forms. The social experience of the girls' bathroom is a function of the gendered bathroom space. And ultimately, the bathroom reinforces normativity. However, it also allows for a way that people check in with themselves and the space around them. It's an intimate, vulnerable, dirty, private, public, shameful, safe, dangerous, ephemeral, and mundane space. It is full of contradictions and contentions. We cannot escape the bathroom, because when we need to go, we need to go. The book of the week this week is All About Love by Bell Hooks, um, as a shocker to no one. Um, it is just one of my favorite books. It is so amazing. Such a beautiful exploration of love. Such a, like, I, I, when I was reading it, like, I felt all of these things to be true. And while it was revelatory in some ways, it was also just kind of like reading something that I've known before in just ways that I could have never imagined it. She was such an amazing writer beautiful way of like exploring scholarly or like historical ideas of love while also balancing it with personal reflections about love. Um, highly recommend it. It's kind of, it's really funny too. I kind of, there's this like meme I saw recently that was like your friend who you wish you didn't bring on vacation. And it's like a picture of a girl reading all about love by bell hooks. So there's this idea that it's kind of like trendy or whatever, but like, I just want to say like, it's not like it is, it is popular because it's a masterpiece, you know, highly encourage it, highly recommend it. 10 out of 10, one of my favorite books ever. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, or rumors you'd like me to spread or dissect in the future, please email them to do you want to come with at gmail.com, or you can DM me on Instagram too. As a reminder though, don't come in my inbox or my DMs asking me stuff you could learn on the internet or from a book or like from life. And also think deeply and critically with your questions and rumors. I'm also not looking for critiques either, just a reminder. Follow me at david.mckeever on Instagram and follow the do you want to Instagram as well at do you want to pod. Also, I'm on TikTok now at do you want to pod on TikTok. You might get some exclusive content there that you wouldn't get anywhere else. Also, um, I just want to thank everybody for all the support and stuff. Like it really means the world to me. If you could maybe take a few seconds to just write a little review on your podcast app and, you know, smash that five stars and say something nice about me and it'll make me really, really happy. Yeah. I'd really appreciate that. No pressure, but also if you're listening this far, you might as well do it at this point. Uh, anyways, until we go to the bathroom again, I'm David McKeever and this is, do you want to come with? Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye. Mama.